This is episode number 571 with Professor Tim Kraska, co-founder of Einblick and associate professor at MIT. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. We've got a deep, innovative one for you today with Professor Tim Kraska. Tim is an associate professor in the globally revered Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or if you'd like to say that the quicker, more common way, CSAIL out of MIT. Based on his research at CSAIL, Tim co-founded Einblick, a visual data computing platform that has received $6 million in seed funding. Previously, Tim was a professor at Brown University, a visiting researcher at Google, and a postdoctoral researcher at UC Berkeley. He holds a PhD in computer science from ETH Zurich in Switzerland. Today's episode gets into technical aspects here and there, but will largely appeal to anyone who's interested in hearing about the visual, collaborative future of machine learning. In this episode, Tim details how a tool like Einblick can simultaneously support folks who code, as well as folks who'd like to leverage data and machine learning without code. How this dual no-code Python code environment supports visual, real-time, click-and-point collaboration on data science projects, and how it was inspired by Hollywood films like Minority Report. Uh, He also talks about the clever database and machine learning tricks under the hood of Einblick that enable the tool to run effectively in real time, how to make data and data models more widely available in organizations, and how university research environments like MIT CSAIL support long-term innovations that can then be spun out to make game-changing commercial impacts. All right, you ready for this fascinating episode? Let's go. Tim, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. It's so great to have you here today. Where are you calling in from? Uh, thanks, John. Like, really great to be here. Um, I'm currently in Cambridge in my MIT office. Nice. Yes. And so you're an associate professor at the iconic MIT Computer Science and AI Laboratory, or CSAIL for short. But you also recently co founded Einblick and Einblick seems to be doing really well for these early days. You've already raised $6 million in seed funding. So in this episode, we're going to talk about both of these things. We're going to talk about your research, and we're going to talk about how it's being applied to Einblick. So um, you have a paper, for example, called Northstar, an interactive data science system, and we'll be sure to put a link to that paper in the show notes. And that paper outlines the motivations and key requirements behind what later became Einblick. So the system is inspired by futuristic visions of highly collaborative visual environments like those in Bond movies and in Minority Report. Um, So that's kind of, that's fun that that's where the inspiration comes from and that you mentioned that in the paper. Um, So uh, Einblick, which later came out of that, um, it's a German word. It means kind of one view, right? You you speak German better than me. So uh, tell us where the name came from uh, how it came out of your research, uh, fill us in. <laughs> sure, more than happy to. Um, so Einblick actually means one view if you write it as two words. And right. 
And the reason why we did that is because we have very visual interface and um, like if you do something with Einblick with one view, you should see everything necessary to get your insight. At the same time, if you write Einblick as one word, um, how we have it on our web pages, it actually means insight in German. So ah. it's a very, <laughs> it's a very clever wordplay, which of course almost nobody gets except when you're from <laughs> Germany. Um, <laughs> so, um, like, but, but a little bit more about the background, how this whole project actually came together. And you mentioned in the beginning, a minority report. So, like, the project started a long time ago, like in 2013, we, we thought, like, started really thinking about it. In like around 14 and 15, we had like a first prototype. And um, the main motivation was that we saw this like large interactive whiteboards like appearing on the market, like the Microsoft Surface Hub, the Google Jamboard, uh, Samsung Flip. There were a whole bunch of them and they're they are all around and they're getting more traction than ever. Um, and essentially what you, how you can think about them is it's, it's a large touchable TV you put on the wall to have a better video conferencing experience. Right. And and we saw these like devices appear on the market, but they were mainly used to have a shared whiteboard between two locations. And we thought there could be so much more. And like a little bit of the inspiration was like if you um like watch any movie, you, you just pick your favorite. Um you never see a person coding Python in these movies if they do anything with data, right? It's always this visual interface where somebody does a very quick discovery in a team with other people around. But it's never like that somebody is coding Python in front of a PC and other people are watching over his shoulder. You know, this, this simply doesn't happen. And we were wondering, like, what would it actually take to make this vision we see on in movies actually true? Use this, like, touchable interactive whiteboards to create an environment where people can actually work together and do discoveries on the fly. Um, and then, of course, because of the pandemic, people were not in the same room anymore. We had to rethink everything again in the context of remote collaboration. But mm -hmm. the, the key vision behind what we are doing actually like stayed the same. We want to bring people together with technical backgrounds in data science, as well as like the uh, domain expertise, like in from the business people, have everybody in the same room and make discoveries on the fly, create insights, create models. Like uh, improve the business overall. Super cool. Um, so part of what drives, what allows Einblick to be such a powerful tool is that it's based on something called a progressive approximation engine. So that sounds pretty fancy, Tim. What does that mean and how does it work? <laughs> yes, like um, it, actually this came as an afterthought when we started that project. So like normally, so I have a systems background and I mainly work in the intersection of machine learning and systems. And normally what we tend to do is like we develop the system first and then we think later on about the user interface on top of it. In the uh, research project Nostar, which is now the company Einblick, we actually did it exactly the other way around. We started with what we cons like considered to be a good user experience and then thought like based on what we want, we we developed the coding system for it to support that interface. And one thing, key thing we discovered, particularly in this context of collaboration, is that um, you cannot have people wait for results. So uh, let's assume like you work alone on a Python notebook, you like start your AutoML tool and it tells you it runs for half an hour or an hour. 
that's normally not a big problem because you just say like, okay, I get a coffee, I walk away in half an hour, I check back in again, and I have my models built, and, and then I continue from there. But if you're on a meeting and an operation takes like a minute or five minutes, and now you have your manager next to you staring with you on a screen with a wait icon, um, that's pretty awkward, right? And if this happens once, maybe, but if it happens the second time, everybody will immediately say, okay, let's take that offline, right? And right. the collaboration right. is over. So nobody right. wants to wait in a team. It's just an awkward experience. Mm -hmm. And so we, we needed to figure out a way to overcome that. Um, and the answer or our answer to the solution, uh, to the problem was like this progressive approximation engine. So how that actually works is, It, uh, for any operation you do in our interface, it first takes a sample of the data, runs the computation over the sample so that you get a very quick result, normally in sub-seconds. And uh -huh. then in the background, it makes the sample larger and larger until it eventually converges to the final answer. So everything like in Einblick stays interactive regardless of the data size, regardless of the complexity of the operation so that you can have several people to work on together and make discoveries on the fly. But at the same time, if you wait long enough, everything will converge to the final answer and you don't have this like uncertainties of like approximate query processing. And like otherwise, if everything is approximate and stays approximate, you're wondering, can I trust the result? And using our technique, we actually bridge the gap. You get fast response time, approximate ones in the beginning, but in the end, you will have the final answer if you would have walked away for half an hour and, and waited for a time. Super cool. Um, so that sounds like some ingenious tech. You can see how this is such a transformative tool. And when you, when you first think of this, you think of it's just a UI that they've had to be clever with. But it isn't. It's under the hood in order to have, like you say, that UI work effectively for collaboration when you have machine learning happening in the background. Yeah, people want to see results right away. There's no point. <laughs> you can't every few minutes be saying, okay, let's grab a coffee. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just awkward. Uh, and like, I think this was like research-wise like such an excited, uh, exciting project because of it, because we really reconsidered everything starting from the user interface down to the system design. And then it also made us to design a whole range of new algorithms. Like for example, our we have an AutoML tool in as many other platforms by now as well, but our AutoML tool is designed again for interactivity. So it memorizes which models run fast and give you good results early on before trying more complex models, which uh, take longer to run, right? And, there should be probably do like later on in, in the cycle and like other tools like that, just all about on how you can help the um, end users to make faster like discoveries as well as bring more people together to actually work on a problem as a team. Yeah, let's, so let's dig into that auto ML piece a little bit more, which I think is a really cool aspect of it. So when you're using Einblick, you could be doing it by yourself or you could be doing it with somebody else and you're, Uh, you can be grabbing uh, like functions uh, that are on a two-dimensional plane and you kind of link functions together into workflows. And if you want to do some machine learning with some of your data, then you can choose to do auto ML. So automatic machine learning, we've talked about it on earlier episodes, but for uh, listeners who haven't listened to those episodes or aren't familiar with the term, it's this idea of allowing an algorithmic approach to selecting the appropriate model for the problem that you're tackling, as well as appropriate hyperparameters. 
for the model, so uh, the configuration of the particular modeling approach. And so there's a really cool no-code way that you implement it where if I was writing Python code, I would have a large number of arguments that I could have uh, as I, say, select some AutoML function. And the way that you do it in Einblick is it's a series of questions. So it's like, you know, are you using this kind of data or that kind of data? Is this, are all the variables as important uh, as the others? Um, and so by asking these kinds of prompts, uh, anybody, whether they have coding experience or not, can uh, be guided through um, an AutoML uh, selection procedure. And then in the background, using your progressive approximation engine, you'll start to get results right away and then, as you mentioned, they will be more and more refined as more complex algorithms can be used behind the scenes. Yes, I think you you really got it to the point. Like I, I think the when we designed the interface, what we always had in mind was that we want to enable more people to do like more work with data on their own, but at the same time also have the right environment for uh, like the hardcore data scientists. And like the, the key aspect was always like, let's try to figure out a way that we can bring the two together. And so what, what the platform actually does is just like it for the like user who just gets into it or like, like the business expert who doesn't know how to code in Python yet or took like one Python class maybe. Um, like we offer these like assistants, which like, as you said, they walk you through and they tell you on how to configure an operator in, in a very like guided way, an easy way. On the other hand, if you're a pro user, you can not only skip entirely the, um, the guide, like the assistant, but you can even use just like a, a code only approach in the same platform. And you can also create even like your own operators. And so like, this creates this environment where you can like mix and match visual operators, which can be used by everyone with code. And then like uh, the code being packaged as new operators for the more advanced users. And so now you have an environment where you actually can bring the two together. So like if you have a data science team and let's say a product manager and they're trying to figure out, okay, what features of the platform are actually used the most? Um, if we like what feature is used by what type of audience and uh, like depending on where the, the user came from, what is he most likely to use next? And then uh, like what's the likelihood that he gets stuck in a certain point? Like all these requires that actually the, the product manager works together with like a data scientist, right? And now we have an environment that they can do that. And over time, the product manager can do more and more by himself because he sees how right. it's done, right? right. And, and to train them on the fly. And so in the end, like the data scientists can really focus on the things which like are more complex and like more advanced, whereas like the product manager takes over all this like task he needs for his day-to-day -day operation instead of having that split between the two roles. So like, I, I think these assistants help with that and there are a bunch of other things we built into the platform to facilitate that. Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal to noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, the Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour 
over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are handpicked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized, easy-to-read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example, to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free and no strings attached at superdatascience.com DSI. That's superdatascience.com DSI. And now, let's return to our amazing episode. Wow, so cool. So do you have an idea, Tim, about how collaboration and uh, no-code environments like Einblick actually impact productivity? Uh, yes, we do. Um, and some of them is anecdotal and some we actually try to get like quantitative measures. Um, so one thing, we, we actually ran a large user study comparing um, like a Python coding versus like a traditional visual workflow engine, uh, like Ltrix, K9, like you, you can pick one of them and we use one as a placeholder for them. And then Einblick. And uh, what we looked into is just like we, we gave a set of users a bunch of different tasks and asked them to solve them in the different platforms. So like mm. there was a set of tasks for like Python notebooks, a set of tasks for like one of these like visual environments, and then a set of tasks for um, uh, the Einblick platform. And then at the same time, um, for like we only recruited people who had like a Python experience, so who like said about themselves that they're actually data scientists. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we gave them a one-hour like introduction to either Einblick or one of these like visual uh, interfaces. Um, it, the, the results were actually interesting. Um, so like what we found is like that the visual environments and also like a traditional workflow engine can increase your productivity. Um, over like the the traditional ones, but only mm. if you have done the task already a few times in the platform. And right. actually it was less than what we expected, at least for the workflow engine. And like looking then into why this was the case for the workflow engine um, revealed that like this traditional workflow engine engines, you have the problem that you, you put the operators together into a flow of operations but you don't see how the data actually flows through and how it's modified, right? So like if, if one of the operators by mistake, for example, filters almost everything out, or like you have a typo in there and it does the wrong thing, the mm-hmm. only thing, like sometimes you only notice that like after you press play for the entire workloads and then at the end nothing comes out, right? Because these operators hide like all the, the flow of information. Whereas when you're in a, in a Python notebook, um, you normally write a little, little snippet of like a data frame operation or whatever you do, and you immediately see like a, 
like a sample output on the next line, right? And so you really notice and how the data is manipulated and what you do, what you are doing with it. Um, so this is again motivated something we, we did in Einblick where we um, like uh, combine these aspects of a workflow engine with aspects of uh, like no code visualization engine. So instead of just having operators you put together, which don't provide you visual feedback, in Einblick, actually, every operator is visual per definition. It's like it's almost their own plots, like the, the sample snippets you get from Python in between. All of them appear immediately on the screen. And so you see on how the data flows through. And then on top of that, we have a whole range of like, uh, like ready-to-go operations, which make it very easy for you to cover the entire like data science lifecycle from like data wrangling to model building to visualizations to like what if analysis, everything is built in. And so you very quickly can explore the data, but then also do the more complex operations. And so the end result of the user study was like, we saw a productivity increase of up to 50% and also like a, a capability increase by a factor of 2x. Um, so it's, it's a pretty good result. Um, anecdotally, we like we see the collaboration to be one of the key aspects. And that's like, um, in many companies just struggle with in the moment you want to kick off a new data science pro uh, uh, project that you actually bring the people together to get to a common like uh, like vocabulary about the problem. And really understand the data. And in this like initial phase, when you kick something off, like we provide a huge productivity gain, particularly in this like early stages to get the first model and then help to understand that. And then productionization, we are actually less focused on like the other tools for that. But like this prototyping aspects, we see like huge improvements in like time it takes to get something uh, like production ready. Awesome. Um, so Today, I think it's safe to say that the norm in machine learning is to be using Python. Certainly, there are a lot more people using uh, software than no-code tools. So when do you think no-code data science will become the mainstream option? That's an excellent question. And uh, like, there's not an easy answer to it. Um, like, On one hand, I think we see that no-code solutions actually are becoming more popular. So if you go to any large enterprise right now, normally you already find one or the other solution. So people are playing with that. Um, like at the same time, like it's interesting who is using them right now, and it's rarely the business people. So I think like right. the, the almost more interesting question is just like, when are all the business people ready to use these, these aspects. And I think this requires much more like an organizational change to really make that happen. And there are attempts with that. I know large like companies are working on that and everybody wants to do it. You're not completely there yet. Um, the other answer to that one is I think like pure no code will never exist because mm -hmm. there's always this like corner case you need to solve. Right. And, and and then if the no-code operation doesn't have the, the right operator for it or they haven't thought about that corner case, like, yeah, then, then you're out of luck. So actually, right. we claim the answer is code right. last. Like start right. with something which is visual and fast, rapid prototyping, but don't exclude the code for the experts when it's needed. So our take is like code last will succeed. And like probably like in the next two to five years, like I expect 
like much more happening in that uh, area. And I know that like a lot of companies are working on it to to roll out these solutions to uh, like larger audio groups. Nice. That does sound like the right combination to me as well. Um, smart that you allow people to use code last, <laughs> as you say. <laughs> um, so um, making organizations more data-driven and using tools like this, that's probably something that a lot of companies would like to be able to do. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, business people as opposed to technical people being able to take advantage of all the larger and larger amounts of data that are flowing into organizations, having more and more data-driven companies. So um, given this assumed desire for companies to be more data-driven, what do you think are the critical next steps for that to actually happen? Um, yes, like at least based on the experiences we had uh, so far with like working with large enterprises, um, I, I see like there are three things a company needs to do. Um, the first one is clear education. So if you just like have a business person and he has like never used or heard anything about like a classifier and what it means to have a target variable and like features or what like um, feature extraction or an embedding is, it's like, it's very, very hard to get him ready to really build a model and also understand later on what the model actually does. And so there's something about like data literacy, like everybody should have. And I think like, at least in academia, people recognize that, right? So you see that most um, big universities, like regardless of the subject you're studying right now, you have to take some data class, right? So like they want to have everybody like exposed to like some basic data understanding and then know a little bit about statistics. And I think in, in large enterprises, they simply need to offer that education to get everybody on the ground level that they have a basic understanding of, of these tools. Mm -hmm. um, the other aspect is that you need to have the right tooling available. And that means like uh, a platform like Einblick, for example, obviously we believe that's the right choice, but also like the right integration. So like you need to make it easy for the people, for example, to connect to the right data sources. Nobody should be wrangling around with like ODBC or JDBC drivers. Like with a click of a button, they should be able to connect to the right data source. And then just have Einblick ready so that like the, the overhead to get started is as low as possible. Right? And so that's like tooling and integration is, is the second aspect. And then the, the last one is also equally important is um, you need to have the right incentive structure and ease people in. Um, and what I mean by that is like if like let's assume like you have a uh, like somebody working with a data scientist. Um, from the business side, and he's just used to send his request to the data scientist and at some point gets an answer back. What is his incentive to actually do right. more by himself? Right. right? Because it's like he has a personal assistant, right? Yeah, nobody wants to do work. Everybody wants to push it downstream. Exactly. And like it, it creates a very unhealthy environment because like the data scientist doesn't want to deal with all the same requests again. The business users normally has to wait then. But you need to overcome that uh, model. And we actually saw a company struggling with that because they were so used of doing it in a certain way that you need to provide the right incentives to change that. Um, and there are different ways, again, to do that from like incentive structures you put out 
uh, to like uh, join coding sessions so that they learn how to do it themselves or like training on the fly. So like you say, okay, you only like, if you want to solve this, don't send it just to the data scientist. At least you have to watch how he does it. So next time you can do it yourself, right? And in the moment right. you see like how something is made, like there's a higher incentive for you to do it yourself the next time. In That's particular, right. if it's easier to do it yourself than explaining to somebody else what you want and, and you know, like, and then understanding the result again. So I think those three aspects is, like uh, needs to be addressed. And then these initiatives about like becoming a data-driven company can actually be successful. Awesome. Yeah, it makes so much sense. The tools have got to be available and the incentives have got to be right. Um, I hadn't yeah. thought about that incentives one before. That is a, a clever angle. I often just think about, um, as a technologist, I'm too quick to think about a technological solution and fail to think of the structural, the social issues. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I like I also didn't expect the incentive one to come up, but it was very, very clear from the very first customers we had that if you want to make it broadly, uh, like uh, roll something out like Einblick in an organization, like those three things really need to be aligned. Yeah, I think the vast majority of people, whether they're technical or not, um, fear the unknown. And when you don't know how to do something, you worry about getting it wrong. You worry about breaking something, and so you don't even take those first steps to experiment. You'd rather just just ask somebody else, feel like it's not your responsibility, than to learn something new, uh, which is a funny thing about people. Um, and maybe listeners to this program and data scientists in general are as far from that kind of profile as humans get. But I think even for me, everything I do, there's often there's this taking the first step. Is like, okay, we're going to do this. Um, yeah, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. Yes, the platform is called Super Data Science. It's the namesake of this very podcast. In the platform, you'll discover all of our 50 plus courses, which together provide over 300 hours of content, with new courses being added on average once per month. All of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off. Sign up today at www.superdatascience.com. Secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. There's also something else interesting which we found, uh, like, uh, as well by working with some of the customers together. It's just like, so we always thought like that the business users would start first in Einblick and then ask data scientists for help when they get stuck. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, and this is again a psychology issue, it, you don't want to look stupid. So if they start out right. and need to ask for right. help, you know, it's just like they don't want to do that, particularly if like, his, like the manager or somebody can figure it out. Um, and so, like, you need to, again, change the way on how people work together from the beginning uh, so that they don't run in this, like, psychology issues of, like, oh, asking for help is the wrong thing to do, right? Like, asking for help should be, like, always a good thing to do. And, um, yeah, but but we also observe that. Uh, and now we, we do things a little bit differently when we uh, roll out Einblick to address that. Cool. So you kind of mentioned this already. You've, you've talked about we've been we've been dancing around this anyway, is that there's these different kinds of users, business users, data science users, 
So do you have stats on who currently is using Einblick? And then can you explain a use case where them using Einblick allowed them to solve a problem that they otherwise might not have been able to solve? Uh, yes, like so. Uh, interestingly enough, like in the beginning, we had a lot of data scientists on the platform. This is changing rapidly, so we see like more and more people from other areas, like particularly the the domain expertise, uh, like the users with domain expertise, actually using the platform directly. And this is a wide range from like um, academics, actually, uh, to um, let's say HR people, we have several people from manufacturing on it. Um, so it's like, it's really a broad spectrum and product management is also another one, uh, which is standing out finance, um, like use cases, interestingly as well, like very a lot, um, two things which we often observe right now is that, uh, people want to do something more with event data. So a lot of uh, problems are, are around events. Like I'm just mentioning here one, which just is at the top of my head. Um, so we were working with an, uh, the, in an HR team in a large like car manufacturing company together. And uh, the goal this person had was like to predict if one of their manufacturing workers is at risk of leaving. And, mm -hmm. and so as the base data, what they had was like... Um, events of the manufacturing workers. So like, for example, when did he clock in? When did he clock out? Uh, yep. How many mistakes in the manufacturing process did he may, uh, made? Like what training did he go through? And so mm -hmm. all of these are like event data. So like each of them is like an event timestamp. It's just like some action the, the worker did or like or something else that was measured around him. Yep. And so the, the task you have now is take this event data and you need to wrangle it in a way that you create a feature vector out for each like particular worker. And then based on the feature vectors and past data, you now can build a model which gives you a likelihood that somebody is at risk of leaving. Right? Sure. Yeah. And, and so this was a really cool use case because it required to have the HR people work together with the data scientists to come up with this like feature vector. The HR person alone would never be possible, like able to do that in the beginning, at least without any training to do something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But with the Einblick platform, we had them work together and saw like things that they really understood what the data means because like all these like events they had are all coded in like in a weird way. And like at some point, some code changed. And so you need to consolidate everything first and you really need to go over the data, look at it with the domain expert together and then build this feature vector out and then very quickly iterate over this feature vector until you have a model which actually worked. Um, and so this was an HR use case, but we now see the same pattern coming again, uh, up again in other areas. Like, um, like I mentioned before, this, this, uh, product conversion thing. You get the user into a platform. You're trying to predict which features this user might use. When will he get stuck? When should we reach out? Like all these, these like life cycle, user life cycle decisions you want to drive for marketing and service. And, the end, the end, very, very similar, right? You have a bunch of events. You need to wrangle them into a feature representation for each user and then make a prediction out of it. And so this, this use case we see more and more. Apparently, other platforms are like harder to work with this like event data. And in Einblick, we make it very easy for you. Cool. And one of the things that we've alluded to and you kind of described in the situation that you just described that I think is worth highlighting, which is a really cool thing that Einblick does, is not only 
So I think I'm I'm mostly familiar with these kinds of tools being used for descriptive analysis. But when we're using machine learning here, we're not using it just to uh, just to have some some insight into the data. We can actually be using it predictively. We can actually yeah. be flowing in um, new data, like you're saying in that attrition model that you were describing, where um, you're predicting based on historical data whether somebody's likely to to leave or not. It's you don't have to be. Uh, yeah, you, you don't have to be just remembering yourself. The HR manager doesn't have to remember. You could be having some kind of dashboard um, that is then using the feature weights that the AutoML in Einblick came up with in order to make predictions on, I don't know, a daily basis or a weekly basis. Yeah, yeah. And like in, in this use case, again, with the HR person, like the... the like this is a problem which like the model provides a lot of value for the HR team, but this is not a problem where you have like a 10 person team working on it, right? Like you wouldn't get like a team together, which costs like hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, a year to solve this case because there's not enough value in it, right? But if right. you get a model quickly built, like, yeah, this does provide value uh, for the HR team. And I think there are a lot of use cases in companies right now, from startups to large enterprises, where like this like small solutions, like, oh yeah, one uh, ad hoc model building, exploring the data a little bit to understand like a certain thing. Um, they are not done because the capacity is not there. And if we enable the right people to do more on their own, actually we can get to them and improve the overall like process, right? Totally. Yeah. We hear this kind of buzzwordy word used a lot to describe what you're describing, the demo the democratization of AI, where yeah, where the HR manager can build their own ML model and doesn't rely on the data science team. So the, the talks I always gave in like 2015 just about the research prototype was always named democratizing data science. Like, and I give them all over the place in the academic context. And yeah. <laughs> there you go. You're a contributor to that fad for sure, which is peaking now, <laughs> no doubt. Um, uh, I think Gartner and Co have a different term for it, like citizen data scientist, which I uh, yeah. never really liked that much. But it's it's also, yeah, a term they, they definitely <laughs> use. Yeah, that's a funny one because the citizen is like the opposite of like military or something. It's like, <laughs> uh, I guess democratization is also, yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, of the two options, the better option. Um, so since the beginning of the episode, we've been talking about how you're an associate professor at MIT and that this research is related to your the research that you do at MIT. So um, having Einblick as a university spinoff how does that work at MIT? What are the advantages of doing it that way? Yeah, I think like uh, academia in general is like a great place to explore ideas which are further out there. And so mm -hmm. like I, I, I'm very certain that if we would just try to raise, let's say, capital based on the idea we want to create a minority <laughs> report yeah, user like, interface. You've seen the movie Minority Report, right? I mean, come on, <laughs> this is a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think people would have been very, very skeptical. I, and so, like, I think what academia is really excellent at uh, is just, like, really trying things out, which is, uh, like, high risk and high chance of failure, right? Uh, and But at the same time, if they work out, there's, like, high reward. And I, I think it's a great breeding ground for, um, like, 
cool ideas and in the end also companies. So I did my postdoc at the AMP Lab and like I think the the leading example there is Spark and like now Databricks, which like essentially followed the same model. Right. They recognize like Hadoop is all disk based. Let's put everything into my memory and, and create an open source framework around that, and which came out mm -hmm. of academia. And I know it's a super successful company. Mm -hmm. um, and Ali Gotzi, the CEO, and I, we used to go actually for coffee almost every single week. Um, so um, like, again, uh, another, another of these examples, and now they have even more companies there. So I was... Like, I, I, I wasn't yeah. super familiar with the Databricks story until this week. So at the time of recording, it is the beginning of April. And I had just spent the last few days at a conference in New York called Scale Up AI. And uh, Ali was uh, one of the opening speakers. He did, uh, on the first day, the first morning, he did um, an opening talk, like a fireside chat where he was interviewed. He was supposed to be... Uh, in person at the conference, but I think he was having a child born that day or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't uh, fly out. Um, and yeah, it is it is an amazing story how Spark came out of academia and the success is incredible. They they mentioned in his interview that Databricks has now gone over a billion dollars in ARR. Yeah, um, yeah. They did a fantastic job of like hosting the platform. It's just like it's it's uh, it's. Really, really great. The the funny thing is just like even in the beginning, I, I wasn't even the biggest fan of Spark as a framework, but like I completely miss like placed it because like what they are, it was so clear later on, they really cared about like the, the usage and the open source right. like impact it can have rather mm -hmm. than just like uh, publishing papers over it. And so they did this basic groundwork and then eventually, like, they also did, like, amazing research, but it wasn't very clear in the beginning, right? It's just, like, it's not like, oh, these ideas have been explored in the past. But then they had this whole open source framework. It was super useful. And then, like, even more interesting papers came out of it as a research thing. So it's, like, kind of an inspiration for me as well. Um, like, they did a fantastic job. And Ali is, like, it's, he is a really, really good guy. Cool. Well, nice to, uh, to make that connection. So um, let's talk about some other academic research <laughs> that also involves industry. So uh, you recently had a collaboration with Google on research and in it, you tackled the limitations that modern databases face with the static nature of components like index structures, filtering methods and partitioning schemes. So can you explain what these problems are and how they can be improved with machine learning? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, so. Like it, the original work was like, <laughs> this was an idea which uh, came at some point, like while I was at Google. So I was doing a sabbatical there. So I took a leave from Brown University back in the day and um, spent a year uh, in at Google in a team which had nothing to do with systems, databases, or normally what I have been doing. So there I was like with Ed Shee and he runs their... Um, like he runs a big research team around recommendation engines. And so everything I was hearing was like all this stuff about neural nets and it was a complete different world. Um, and so um, like, yeah, while I was there, at, at some point I had this, this idea of uh, that, uh, like we can potentially change entirely the way on how we find data. So to give you a, a more like tangible use case here, it's just like, let's assume you go to the library. Like if you want to find a book by a title, 
what you can do is like uh, go to the catalog and then find the right index card, which tells you where the book is. Right. So like normally every library has like a bunch of these like drawers, like the whole catalog, which is like alphabetically ordered, which helps you then with your, your title in mind. Let's say Harry Potter, you first have to go to the drawer with age and then you find the right index card that points you then to the location. Right. Um, and this is essentially on how every single uh, like database system right now implements uh, the way to look up data. Uh, at least if you support something that is called range scales. There, there are some other index structures, but this is like this way of like traversing uh, a catalog is like one of the key access methods every single database has. Um, however, if you go to the library, you probably wouldn't go to the catalog first. The first thing you would do mm -hmm. is ask the librarian and say like, I'm looking for the Harry Potter book. Can you tell me where it is? And he would roughly point you in the right direction. Right. right. He wouldn't tell you exactly where it is, but he's, he probably will say something like, oh, look into the right corner. And there are all the, the kids and young adult books. And then I think it's somewhere on the right, left in the middle. Right. Um, yeah. So like this is this is normally what, what uh, librarian would do. And so what I was wondering myself is just like, can we not do the same thing for a database system? Um, and so instead of having this like catalog structure, which is like you have to build and maintain and it's very expensive, replace it with a model, which is approximate, and then do some localized search in the end, which guarantees that you find the same data. Um, and it turns out that like if you do it the right way, this can be actually much, much faster. Uh, and then it turns out that you can use the same idea also to replace other data structures. Um, so not only B-trees, which is the typical way of implementing a catalog, but you can potentially also do like a bloom filters with that. Right? Um, you can use the same idea to improve sorting. Um, and there are a bunch of other things. And the core principle behind them is all the same. It's always that you learn a model over the data, normally the data distribution, and then you leverage that model to make to design a better algorithm that was more efficient. Um, so that's one category. And then it turns out that you can actually expand that even further in when you take like other things like the workloads into consideration. And so the uh, and like this is now then called like algorithms with oracles, right? So like you take an oracle, a model as a prediction, and now you design a better algorithm with this model in mind. And this is, for example, useful for scheduling or for query optimization. And there are a bunch of, um, of uh, other algorithms or components of a database system as well, which you can like, integrate these models very, very deeply within. Um, overall, like, the end result eventually will be what we call now an instance-optimized system. So if you, if you take a traditional system, it's like an architect designs it for a range of potential use cases and workloads and data. And as a result, it works for a whole range of applications, but it probably doesn't provide you the best possible performance for each one of them because of this general nature. Right. Right? But now if you have this like mechanism of machine learning and it's deeply embedded in the system, we, we hopefully, or and this is what we are working on, can build something which we call an instance-optimized system. So the system is self-adjusting um, all its components based on the workload and the data of, uh, it observes to provide unprecedented performance, like orders of magnitude faster. Um, 
and we, we are heavily working on that. We, we actually have a prototype, um, and it's, it's very, very promising. Super cool. So I guess the main impact of these kinds of techniques like learned bloom filters or learned indices, which allow databases to be more efficient by learning particular characteristics of the particular data that are in them, I guess the main impact is that it makes using databases faster for practitioners, right? Is there, are there other benefits it, as well, or is that the main thing? It's faster and easier. So like it's mm -hmm. a, a traditional system normally has a bunch of knobs. So like if, if I design, let's say, a, a database or a key value store, like pick your favorite system. Um, normally, I not only make a bunch of decisions about the workloads I uh, expect to, to arrive for the system, and I design the system in the way for these workloads I have in mind. But often, like I also put a bunch of knobs in there because I know I want to need to tune certain parameters in the right way. So now, if you go to instance optimized uh, systems, like the hope is that we can not only configure the entire systems in ways which are not possible before, but also that we take the burden away of tuning all these knobs for the end user or the administrator. Right? Mm. And so, as an end result, it's easier to use because you don't have to tune the knobs anymore. Plus, you potentially get way better performance, like orders of magnitude faster than what's currently possible. Wow. Oh, cool. All right. So that's a super cool, another strand of research that you're doing beyond um, Einblick. So clearly the work that you do uh, across academia and industry is uh, transformative for the way that we can be working with data and devising models and having better data-driven organizations. So um, I'd love to hear what you think the trends are. So um, where do you think we're going to be in uh, five years from now with um, data science tooling and database technology? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so like on one hand, I think like instance optimization and ease of use is becoming more important than ever. And so I think like if you look at like uh, database providers like Snowflake, like they are they are so successful not only because they they run in the cloud and they made like but mainly because they made it so much easier, right? So mm -hmm. get an instance up and get running. And I think ease of use is is a key aspect um, next to of course performance. So I'm I'm a strong believer that we will see first instance optimized systems actually appear on the market and they will not only be faster, but they will also be much easier to use. On the other hand, I'm also a big believer that we see a change in how people are actually working together. And this is like a little bit inspired by what we are doing at Einblick, uh, but and as well as like the pandemic. So if I think about how people were like working on text in the past, it was most mainly people using Word and then sending Word documents offline around. And then you would do again your, your changes in the Word document, right? And then send your changes again around and quickly it became a total mess. And yeah. lawyers actually still work in that way, right? They still oh, I like... know. It's, it's, <laughs> it blows my mind. And yeah, like when, oh, when you're working on contracts with people and then they don't track changes, you're like, oh my God, how could you not? Right. It's, it's just, just yeah, like, it's, it's awful. Yeah. And now you have these online tools like uh, Office 365, uh, Google Docs, and they make it arguably so much better, right? Like people yeah. see the changes no immediately. 
Yeah. We see the same trend going on for other areas like um, tick design. It used to be the case that you use like Photoshop or Illustrator and you send PDFs around as like the final outcome, right? And then you right, iterate right, right. all the PDFs. Now with Figma, people again have this like real-time online collaboration, like not necessarily in person, but remote uh, as well. And like to come to a conclusion. And I think every like other aspects will end up with that. So like, I think data science um, will be impacted as well in the same way. And I don't think that like simultaneous or real-time coding in a Python notebook is the right solution there because if like somebody is at the bottom of it and somebody else changes something at the top, right, right, everything right. breaks down, right? It's just like, it's, it's not the right paradigm. So given this trend of real-time collaboration, I think we need the right interfaces for it. And I think we will see it happen for data science and, Eindic is one of the solutions, but like mm -hmm. maybe there are also others in the future and it's always good to have competition. But I, I really do see that as a, as a trend. Nice. Yeah, super cool. I was going to say what you're describing there does sound familiar. It sounds like oh, I know Oh, yeah, it does. Like if, if you wouldn't believe in it. <laughs> um, amazing. All right. So uh, now that we've talked about Einblick so much, there's probably people itching to try it. How can they try it? They should just go to our website, einblick.ai, and uh, sign up, and you can immediately try it out. Your like, There's a free version, which will never expire, uh, and it has the full functionality built in. Uh, just to make sure that everybody gets the word Einblick right, <laughs> it's E-I-N-B-L-I-C-K dot A-I. Nice. Easy for the German speakers out there. Probably harder for everyone else, but uh, <laughs> a great name. I love the etymology of it. Um, and then in addition to that, for people who want to dig really deep into understanding no code, you have a professional MIT uh, course coming up, right? That's correct. Like this summer, we have a professional uh, no code, uh, like data science course coming up. Um, registration is still open. It's, it's like, uh, uh, what is the word, to feel, uh, uh, the word for the course? It's like... Um, real-time virtual so like it's real-time lectures but it's virtual <laughs> right cool um so that'll be cool to check out and then uh do you have a book recommendation for us it doesn't <laughs> necessarily need to be about no code it could be about anything but i ask that at the end of every program i <laughs> yeah uh i thought about it a little bit like the last book i really really enjoyed reading was hail mary so i'm actually uh, like from um uh Andy Weyer, right? Um so like I'm actually not a big fiction fan, but like he has this like uh art of mixing science with like a story. And I think this book is just excellent. Oh nice. That sounds cool. Um I I do love a great fiction recommendation. So thank you. And then clearly Tim, you're a brilliant professor you're a talented entrepreneur, you've got exciting things happening now and will uh, continue to in the years to come. So how should people best follow you or Einblick online? Um, so we have a Twitter account and I also have my personal one. You can just sign up there. Um, I'm also always welcome uh, LinkedIn connections so you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, so like essentially the, the usual channels, um, we are also about to launch actually a new no code data science uh, course on YouTube. So if you come to Einblick's YouTube page, um, and just follow that, you will also be informed about whatever is coming on, on that front. 
Nice. Sounds great. All right, Tim, thank you so much for this fun and informative episode. It was great having you on. Uh, maybe we can check in again in a few years and see how all the research and entrepreneurial progress is coming along. That would be great. Thanks again, John, for having me. What a great episode with a brilliant computer scientist and entrepreneur. In today's episode, Professor Kraska filled us in on Einblick's progressive approximation engine that allows instantaneous machine learning results that are then refined gradually in the background, how incentives within an organization need to be set up so that anyone who wants access to data or data models knows how to fish themselves, as opposed to the common modern scenario of badgering data scientists to provide fish for them. Tim also talked about how research universities like MIT support high-risk long-term research that once incubated can be spun out and transform industries. How machine learning applied to databases, such as learned bloom filters and learned indexes, can enable databases to be faster and more efficient. And Tim talked about how in the coming years, real-time collaboration environments that are like Google Docs are likely to become more widespread for data science tasks. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Tim's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com slash 571. That's superdatascience.com slash 571. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Thanks to my colleagues at Nebula for supporting me while I create content like this Super Data Science episode for you. And thanks, of course, to Ivana Tsebird, Mario Pombo, Serge Massis, Sylvia Ogvang, and Kirill Aramenko on the Super Data Science team for managing, editing, researching, summarizing, and producing another fascinating episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.